Our Father, we thank you for today. We give you praise. Thank you for gathering us unto you. Father, we pray that as we go into your word, that you speak to us by yourself. Nothing that we do here or say here today would waste our time. Nothing that we do or say here today will be listened to with hearts of distraction or hearts of worry. Everything that we do today will be according to your will. And your children will hear the things that you want them to hear in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to another service. Today, we're starting a new series that I have titled Resist the Devil. Uh, if there is anyone beside you, can you tell the person resist the devil? You're not saying it like it's something you're serious about. <laughs> resist the devil. Amen. I want to start today with a short analogy. And I want you to follow me closely. Uh, before I tell you our topic for today. Throughout this series, as always, I'm not the only one that will be speaking to you. Throughout this month, we'll have different speakers that would come and will teach you different aspects of what it means to resist the devil. My job here is just to introduce it. Amen. But before you open your Bibles to anything, I want to give you an analogy. And um, for, forgive me for those people who might not be able to relate directly with this analogy, but I know some people here can. Amen. But don't worry, whether you can or you can't, you get the message. So I watch a lot of English football, right? And um, I support a team, I won't mention the name of the team, that has struggled for a lot of years. Amen. And um, but in recent years, they've been doing pretty well. They've been coming up again, and things are looking up for us. Amen. <laughs> and um, essentially, last, the last football season was weird because we had like a run of games where we, had, we did very well. Like we were winning consecutively. But then there was this thing called an international break that happened. And after the international break, we came back and we lost like three games in a row. It was horrible. It was terrible. And I listened to a football podcast, a particular one where there are like four people that speak. And four of them are very unique and very diverse in the ways that they think. So they were analyzing, like, why did this happen? And one of them said that, well, the thing is that our team got found out, essentially. So his theory was that, yes, we had been playing well consistently, but... Basically, our formation and our tactics have now been what found out by what all the other teams in the league. So essentially, those other teams are now able to prepare better to counter what we want to do. Which is a reasonable point. But someone brought a counter argument still on that same podcast, and the other guy said no. That he doesn't believe that that's the problem particularly. And he said, and this is where I'm going, he said, and he mentioned the two best teams in the league, who have been the best teams in the league for a couple of years now. They've been going head to head for years. And he said, look at those two teams. 
everybody knows how they are going to play. You have a rough idea of how they are going to play. They play very differently, both of them. But as an opponent, you're not coming to them and you're saying you don't know how they are going to play. You do. But just because you know does not mean that you can win. Just because you know how they are going to attack you doesn't mean that you can particularly do anything about it. Because the difference is a difference in quality. And that the problem that our team currently had was not really that how we were playing was figured out, but that we did not have enough quality to play the way we wanted to play for a sustainable period in time. And I kind of agreed with that. Because till tomorrow, those two particular teams, I probably know how they will play if we play against them. It doesn't mean that we can do anything to stop them. The title of my message today is No Plan B. Because much like the analogy I just gave, the devil gets us in just one way. One. He doesn't really have other tactics. He doesn't really have other things that he actually does. But you see, the thing is, the devil is older than man by thousands of years. He was in existence long before we did. The problem is that that is one way is so efficient and is so good that if you're not properly equipped, even if it's just plan A, right, you'll still fall for it. And that's what we want to talk about today. We want to talk about how the devil gets us, why the devil gets us. What's the point of this life that you are living? Amen. And why you have to resist the devil. The first thing I want to talk about is the uniqueness of man. What makes man what? Unique and different. I'm not talking about the Christian now. I'm talking about the whole of humanity. Because Christianity has a place. But Christianity was not in existence in the Old Testament. Right? So there's something about humanity, there's something about man that makes man unique. And the primary thing that makes man unique in the context of our topic today is that man is the only being that has one foot in the eternal and he has another foot in the temporal. Amen. What that means is God is the man is the only being that has one foot in eternity and has another foot in what? in time and space, the way we are living today. No other beings do. The animals don't, because the animals have no divinity. We are the ones that have a divine what? Nature. That's how God created us. In the book of Genesis chapter 2, what does the Bible say? The Bible says that what? And God what breathed his spirit into man, and man became a living soul. We're the only ones that have that. We're the only ones that have one foot in time, but also one foot out of what? Out of time, in eternity. The angels don't have that. The animals are just here. They don't have a, a spark of divinity in them. The angels were not created in flesh, so they exist in what? In eternity. We're the only ones that have both. 
And that makes us unique in many ways, in more ways that you can imagine, than you can imagine, rather. Which is why if you go through your Bible, if you read Ecclesiastes chapter 3, it's a, it's a scripture that talks about time. And basically, Solomon was saying there's a time for what? For everything. And many of us quote that even as what? And as an expression. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to this, a time to that. But if you get to verse 11 of this particular scripture, you would see that he now says, but God has put eternity in the heart of what? In the heart of man. Eternity being in the heart of man is the root cause of everything that we call religion today. Amen? Because no matter who you are, there is no denial in every man that there is something beyond this one. That's the foundation of everything you call religion. Is that people want access or people want to be able to communicate with what? With the divine. Because there's a hunger and a thirst in humanity that is naturally there. That beyond this temporal life, this we wake up, we sleep. Beyond this existence, there is something in man that knows that there's something beyond it. The problem usually is how we find the answers. And there are so many answers that exist in the world today. And that's the root of religion. But what drives man to religion and belief in something higher than himself is because eternity has been planted in what? In the heart of man. We know there's something beyond this. We might try to deny it. We might try to explain it away. We might try to act like it's not there, but it is. We might not know how to pursue it, but it's there. Because man has what? A foot in eternity. And what? A foot in time. And that's what, make, that's what makes man so unique. But you see, when we talk about eternity, we have two things we have to talk about. We have to talk about divinity, and we have to talk about damnation. Divinity is another word for life, in that divinity is life because life is God. Man was created with divinity inside of what? him. So, although he ex existed in a natural plane, confined by time and what? And space. He had a slice of divinity inside him. But you see, damnation is what we will call death. Eternal death. Losing what? That divinity that is inside of what? Of man. But you see, those two exist in the area of eternity. They are both what? Eternal concepts. And if you go through your Bible, that's when you start to understand some things and ask yourself your quest some questions. One of the most peculiar things about eternity is that in eternity, there is no change. Because there is no time. And that's why our God does not what? Doesn't change. You read your Bible and you read some things and you wonder why. There was a time Jesus was having a conversation with the Pharisees and Jesus was talking to the Pharisees and the Pharisees were calling themselves the, ch the children of Abraham and he was saying, no, you are the children of the devil because your father, the devil, was a liar from what? From the beginning. 
And then you ask yourself and say, wait, was the devil really a liar from the beginning? Maybe we read in the same Bible that at some point he was an angel of light and he was Lucifer and all that. How do you reconcile both of them? You can't because you exist within time. So you, you look at things in, in, the, in, the, in the aspects of what, of past and what, and present and what, and future. That does not exist in eternity. Eternity just is. So when you read that what, he was a liar from the beginning, it's true. Because he is a liar now. And all that exists in eternity is what? Now. You're already scrambling your brain, are <laughs> It's the same reason why we say there's no repentance after death. Why? Because when you leave this temporal plane, you cross over to what? Eternity. And in eternity, there is no change. So if you are damned when you get there, you are damned for what? Forever. You just are. That's why repentance is for us that are what? That are here, still under the confines of time and space where we can change. So man occupies a very unique what? Position. We're not like anything that God created. We're not like the angels because the angels are not confined to time. But not like the animals or the plants because they don't have God inside them. So if you understand that, then I can tell you the one trick that the devil uses for what? To tempt you. Because our topic is resist the devil. There's only one thing that the devil does to man. He makes man to prioritize the temporal at the expense of the eternal. I want you to write it down. It makes man to do what? Prioritize what? The temporal at the expense of the eternal. And if you check your Bible, you see that this is consistent. And we're going to look at it. That's the only weapon the devil has. Literally, he has nothing else. Everything that he does revolves around this one statement that I made. So sometimes you should give the devil less what's less credit. He doesn't really deserve a lot of credit. This is one trick. But again, his trick is so what? He's so refined. And he has worked on it for so long that it works. So let's look at two sets of people today, right? Let's look at people that we say are not Christian or are unbelievers, and the people that are what? Believers. You see, for unbelievers, this prioritizing the temporal over eternal is their natural state. It's what? Their natural state. It's how they are. So the devil does not really work hard when it comes to them. He doesn't need to. But you see, for us believers, it is not supposed to be our natural state. And that is why temptation only exists for what? For us. We are the only ones that would get tempted. Because the real definition of temptation 
it's not one particular sin. Oh, they say he's lying. Oh, they say he's stealing. They say, oh, this someone is committing sexual sin. Oh, they say the person is doing fraud. All these things are just symptoms. If you check the root cause of everything that you call sin, at the heart of it, it is man prioritizing what he wants here and what and now at the expense of his what? Eternal home. Divinity that God has placed inside him. And that's the reason why temptation only exists for the Christian. And before Christianity, it was also so. And let me show you the devil and how he is. Before Jesus came and died, because it's after Jesus died that we could be what we could be saved. So before Jesus came and died, there was no salvation. But throughout history, from Genesis to the death and resurrection of Jesus, there were only two sets of people that we can say had what? Divinity inside them. The first set of people were who? Adam and Eve. And the other person was Jesus himself. Why is it that in your whole Bible, those are also the only two sets of people that were tempted directly by the devil? Why? Because it's only them that can experience temptation. When we read the story of Job, Job is different. Job did not, the devil didn't come to Job. The devil went to God. And they had a conversation about Job. You see, the devil did not need to appear after Adam and Eve. Because the work had been done. They had already lost what? Their divinity the life in them. So man, in his natural state, will always prioritize the temporal over what? The eternal. So he doesn't need to show up anymore and do anything special. The only other time he showed up again was when another person came. The second Adam, Jesus himself, who had what? Divinity inside him. So what did he do? He also came to tempt that one. He has one word, one trick. That's the only weapon he has. It's not plenty. But you see, he's so good at it that we fall for it still. So how does he do this? How does he make us prioritize the temporal? Let's open our Bibles to 1 John chapter 2, from verse 15 to 16. 1 John 2, 15 to 16 states, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is what? Of the world. And the world passeth away, this is 17, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. 
these three things, the lust of the flesh, the lust of what? The eyes, and the pride of what? Of life, are the three aspects in which the devil gets us. And if you go through the interaction between the devil and Eve, and the interaction between the devil and Jesus, you will see these three things present there. Can we go to Genesis first? Genesis 3, verse 6. Genesis 3, 6. It says, okay, I'll wait for you a bit <laughs> before I read, because I want you to be there. Genesis 3, 6 says, and when the woman saw that the tree was what? Was good for food. And it was pleasant to the eyes. And free to be desired to make one wise. She took of the fruit thereof and did eat. And gave also to her husband and her with her. And he did eat. What are the three things it says here? When she saw that it was good for what? For food. That's a lust of the flesh. And when she saw that it was pleasant to what? The eyes. That is lust of the eyes. And when, when she saw that the tree was, was and a tree to be desired to make one what? Wise. That's the pride of what? Of life. And she saw it and she what? And she ate. The lust of the flesh has to do with the things that this our body wants. The lust of the eyes has to do with the things that we want based on what we see. And the pride of life has to do with our status and the way we see ourselves. Attributes that we want to be associated with what? With us. So you see, she saw that it was desirable to make one what? Wise. She wanted to be wise. Wiser than the person that told her not to eat. And the husband too. Let's not blame Eve. Blame Adam more. Let's not even do that. <laughs> and she saw it was good for what? For food. That is what? The body. And she was pleasant to what? The eyes. That's what? The lust of the eyes. And you might say, oh yes, this is just Eve. So what happened to Jesus? Let's open our Bibles to the book of Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. I'm going to read from verse 1. And it says, And Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Being forty days tempted of the devil, and in those days he did eat nothing, and when he and they were ended, he afterwards hungered. And the devil said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, command this stone to be made bread. What's that? Lust of the flesh. Let's jump to verse five. I'm not going to go to the responses just yet. Verse five says. And the devil, taking him up into a high mountain, showed him what? All the kingdoms of the world 
and the devil in a, in a moment of time, and the devil said unto him, All this power will I give thee, and the glory of them, for that, it's, for that is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will, I give it. If thou therefore will worship me, all shall be thine. What is that? The lust of the eyes. Because the Bible says that the devil showed him the world. He gave him something to crave through what? The eyes. And finally, verse 9, it says, And he brought him to Jerusalem and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down from thence, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over thee, to keep thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash your foot against a stone. What is that? That's the pride of life. Jesus was telling him to do something to prove that he is the son of God. That's pride. That's pride. He's saying, okay, test God, jump down. And if you are truly the son of God, we will now see. That's doing something for what? For his own glorification. So that the world will see, oh yes, he is the son. That's pride. That's the pride of life. And our Lord Jesus himself was not exempt from what? From this temptation. From these three things. Until today, it hasn't changed. The reason we're teaching this series, and the reason I'm introducing this today, is because I want to change your concept or your idea of sin. Don't make a list of do's and don'ts. The Christian life is not about that. You see, when Christians approach the Christian life from the perspective of rigid morality, they make a lot of mistakes. The difference between morality in the Christian faith and morality that is taught outside, or morality the way it seems, or some people teach it, which is wrong, is that you are not living right to become a Christian. You are living right because you are a Christian. So it's not that you are to do good or live right or listen to God to prove that you are a Christian. No. You are already one. You are doing it from the position of knowing who you are. And you are living the way you should because this is who I am. You're not trying to prove anything to God. You're not trying to justify yourself before God because you can't. That's the entire point. It's because I am this. So this is how I am living. I am not doing it to now attain it. Because you can't attain it. If you could attain it, Jesus would not have come to die. He died because you couldn't do it by yourself. So he did it for you. But now that you have it, you have to live by what you already have. So I want to change your conception of our temptation today. I want you to change it. Change it. Go beyond do's and don'ts. Because if you live your life by do's and don'ts, you'll be able to find a defense for what you want to do in the Bible. Then people murder in the Bible. 
I have people talk to me and say some things. And, you know, there are some some subjects in the Christian faith that are they're not supposed to be controversial, but unfortunately they are. And the reason they are controversial is because people are looking for it. Show me where they said. Show me where they said it. And even if you show them and it's in the Old Testament, that's even worse. It's in the Old Testament. Show me in the New Testament. If Jesus himself did not say it, or Paul did not say it, I have to live beyond that. Because that's not what it's about, really. If you go through every single thing that is in this whole Bible from beginning to end, and you read through all the things that God was telling them to do, right up until Jesus, what Jesus was aiming at, what God was aiming at, what he's still aiming at till today through his spirit, is that he does not want his children to compromise the life inside of them for temporary what? Gain. For temporary satisfaction in this world. And that's why John is saying, don't love what? The world. The loss of the flesh is still powerful till today. People are doing ridiculously amazing things just because of fear of what they will what? What they will eat. Is this food, as simple as it is, it's a problem. People are doing what? Ridiculous things. Compromising here and there, selling their souls because of what insecurity of what to what to eat. And when you look at the lust of the eyes, it's greed, envy, avarice. It's so easy to feed it now, particularly in our generation, because we have social media. And someone that is younger than you probably has more than you. Whether it's real or not, you don't know. What you shall know is that two people are in the same career, it started before I started after you. And now he has made it, he has blown or she has blown. And it's all up in your face. For the longest time in my life, I was very intimidated by LinkedIn. <laughs> very intimidated by LinkedIn. I never liked going there. Because I'll just go there and I'll just feel useless. Like, what are you even doing with your life? Because it just felt like everybody was passing me by. For the longest time, and one day it just clicked in my head, like, who am I even competing with? This was years ago. So it's so easy for us now for things to what, get into our eyes. And we see it and we want it simply because eh, I'm so so and so years old. Or I've been in this world for so so and so time. Or God, I've had so so and so experience. By now I should be. Who told you? Who told you? Are you God? Who told you that by now this is what should have happened in your life? Oh, by now I should have done this. By now I should have done that. That's the lust of the eyes. Because you see it and you what? You want it. And it leads you down a path where you compromise your faith. Just to what? To have it. Or the pride of life where is how you see yourself and what you what you feel you deserve. For some people they take pride in their family background. For some people, they take pride in their jobs. For some people, they take pride in their children. For some people, they take pride in their marriage, their spouses, their husbands, and their wives. There is something that has sat in their hearts, something in this world that they will die and live alone, but they don't know.
and yet they have built the entirety of their self-esteem around that thing. And when something threatens that thing, they will do anything to keep it. Imagine if our Savior God, Jesus, imagine if he was threatened about being God's son for real. You know he would have jumped. Because that's what the devil was playing at. Because that's how the devil got Adam and Eve. They were already gods. They were already as wise as God. Yes, they did not know. And for the sake of some wisdom, they what? They compromised. Imagine if Jesus, being the son of God, was not aware of who he is in God. And yes, the devil is saying, okay, you have to prove yourself. If you truly are the son of God, what? Jump down. That's pride. And men and women today do so many things for what? For pride. Just because you want to be able to say that, oh, this is who I am. That's, this is the entirety of anything you call temptation. You see, that's your body that is leading you. You want it, you want it, you need to have it. Your five senses just want it. You want to feel something. It's your eyes that are leading you. And the envy and conversiousness has entered and settled in your heart. Or it's pride that is leading you. It's always one of these three. Check every sin in the Bible. You can allocate it to one of these three. David was a very marvelous and righteous man for most of his life. The Bible calls him the man after God's heart. The two major sins he committed in his life, one was lust of the flesh and the eyes together because he was supposed to be at war and he climbed the roof and he saw Bathsheba. Right? Lust of the flesh. After that, and that whole incident, and that one happened later in his life, because God had given a law that they must not do a census of the armies of Israel. It was God's law. And one day, David woke up and called his chief of army staff and told him to come count the armies. That he just wants to know. What's that? That's pride. Because he was the king and he just wanted to know the strength of what? Of his army, of what he has. And that's Pride. And the chief of army staff, his name is Joab. And you see, if you know anything about Joab, for Joab to be uncomfortable with something that you are telling him to do, he must be doing something really bad. Because Joab was such a garrulous and wicked and unruly man. And Joab, as wicked and unruly as he was, was still looking at David and telling him, this thing that he are <laughs> about to do, are you sure that we should do it. For such a person to be telling you such a thing, you will know that is actually what is bad. Because Joab does not have conscience. He killed people like, like they were chickens. That's the kind of person he was. So for such a man to have a problem with it, you know that, yes, he have gone, he have gone far. And yet David said he should go and do it, and he did it. And immediately he did. Israel suffered the consequences. Check your entire Bible. Check whatever you call sin. Leave 
take away your conception of sin from oh fornication and adultery. Because if you are doing all that, you might not commit all those ones that you think are the important ones. But the devil is still getting you. And you don't even know. Check from Genesis to Revelation. It's one of these things. And there are only two solutions. The first solution, we've already talked about it. And John was the one that said it, which is what? Don't love the world. It might sound very simplistic, but it's a statement of fact. Don't love the world. But for you not to be able to love the world, for you to be able to obey that, you have to get hold of the word of God. Which is what brings us to the responses that Jesus gave to Satan. That's the difference between the temptation of Jesus and the temptation of Adam and Eve. They had nothing to what? To say to him, to combat him. But Jesus did. Jesus had something to what? To say. And for every temptation, Jesus had something to tell the devil. Thou shalt not live what? By bread alone. But by every word that comes out of what? The mouth of God. If you listen to every temptation response from Jesus' lips, what you would find out is that the temptation response in one way or the other prioritizes the eternal over what? Over the temporal. So when Jesus said that you should not what? Live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. What is that? He's prioritizing the eternal word of God over the temporary bread that he will what? He will eat. When he said you should fall down to worship him, to see everything, when he showed him the world, what did he say in verse 8 of Luke chapter 4? And Jesus answered and said unto him, Get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him alone shalt thou serve. Again, what's he doing? He's prioritizing the eternal God over the kingdoms of what? Of the world. And when he brought him to Jerusalem and put him on the tabernacle, and he said, and Jesus answered to him, saying, that's verse 12, it is said, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy what? Thy God. People, it's only the word of God that can save you. Because it's only the word of God that can help you to put your priorities and set your priorities right. And when I say the word of God, I'm not saying put your Bible under your pillow. Or when you are being tempted, you now open your Bible app on your phone. Every single time you are going through temptation, you don't have the time to go and check. When you are going through any temptation in this life, it is what is already inside you that you will use to what? To fight. And if you have nothing inside you, you will fall. You will fall. Always, 100%, every time. Because Jesus was not going to read the scrolls when the devil was talking to him here. Yeah. He was in the wilderness. 
And most of the time, when you're being tempted, you're in a form of what? Of a wilderness. You're in barren land and you're alone. People might be beside you, you might be among a crowd, but in that temptation, inside your heart, that thing that the devil is pushing you towards, you are what? You are alone. You are in your own personal wilderness. And if you don't have the words inside you to defeat him, you what? You fall. So you see, in the same way that there's no plan B from the aspect of the devil, there's also no plan B from the aspect of God. Something I often say, especially when I'm talking to people here, is that the problems are usually the same. The solutions are also usually the same. You can just wear a different skin. It might just be a little tweak. But the solution to temptation is not loving the world. How can you not love the world? Prioritize God. How can you prioritize God? His word. You have to love it and marry it. If not, you can't stand. You won't be able to resist the devil. You find yourself going through a life of struggle. You want to be holy. You want to live righteous. You want to live right, yes. But you've not done the things that will equip you and help you to do so. Amen? Amen. Help us to rise up.